Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 13. This is Shemot, names. This is out of Exodus 1-1 through 6-1. So there is a quote-unquote small but significant letter that starts this Parashah. In Hebrew, the Parashah starts with the word quote-unquote and. And this conjunction indicates there is no separation from the previous Parashah. In fact, in the Hebrew, the first six words of the parasha is identical to those in, Gen- those in Genesis 46.8. Taking us back to review Genesis, we're better equipped to mentally appreciate the forward progress of God's plan to redeem mankind, that is, those who follow his Torah. This one concept of connecting Genesis and Exodus serves as a reminder that everything is connected. We cannot treat the books or verses of the Bible in isolation any more than we can separate the complex unity of the Godhead into three separate persons or a trinity. It is not biblically sound doctrine to do that. It is not taught in the Bible. One of the potential dangers of realizing the interconnectedness of everything in the universe is that there are those who advance the theory of quantum mechanics who propose that because we can't know with certainty where any particle of matter is at any specific time, that God cannot possibly know either. Really? If we believe that when we degrade God's intelligence and knowledge concerning all he created, including his intervention in man's affairs, is limited. The domino effect is then initiated, and those who subscribe to this idea of limited knowledge concerning God and a belief system is adopted and spread that God may have created the universe, but he has no control over it, including man's affairs. Again, this is not true. This is a deist idea. Even some of our founding fathers believed that way, which is incorrect. It's a dangerous, inaccurate explanation and understanding of the interconnectedness of all matter and energy, which have been proven to be interconvertible. This is a belief system of people such as Thomas Jefferson and most recently by Harold Kirshner, who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People. According to a review of the book by Ralph Lewis, M.D., Rabbit Kushner simply dropped his belief in God's omnipotence. Quoting Kushner, Lewis states, I believe in God, but I do not believe the same things about him that I did years ago when I was growing up or when I was a theological student. I recognize his limitations. He is limited in what he can do by the laws of nature and by the evolution of human nature and human moral freedom, unquote. According to Lewis, quote, according from a scientist's point of view, Kushner, God, or any version of God actually, is superfluous and unnecessary addition to the scientific explanation for the existence of the universe and everything in it. The extension of this line of thinking is that the universe has no purpose, but humans do. The question is not one of why something happens to us, but how we react. Sadly, according to Lewis, Kushner, and so many who subscribe to this secular explanation for life events, There is nothing beyond human physical life, no resurrection, no hope of salvation, and an eternity with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no evolving relationship with God on our response to his intervention in our lives, no sense of wonder at or for God's creativity, mercy, grace, and love, no blessed assurance that he will return to deliver his people and destroy evil once and for all. The deist belief system is finite and empty, believing in their own created theology of nature without the divine oversight of Yahweh Yeshua. How sad. 
I provide this brief narrative on deism to illustrate just how different the events in our Padasha and the complete Torah, for that matter, would be described without God's intervention in the lives of humans in world history. Simple human logic dictates the need to prayerfully research and consider how the complete Torah, including the Old Testament and the Brit Kadesha, that's a refreshed, renewed covenant, is consistent and true. All one need do is study the history of the world to see that all prophecy to date has occurred just as prophesied in the Bible. Even someone who likes to gamble would take the bet that all prophecy that is predicted yet has not occurred will come to pass just as it was prophesied. World events to date could not have happened by chance or by determined laws of nature and physics. To deny God and or his intervention in the universe he created is more than naive. It is chosen high-handed sin, denial of God and his Torah, his instructions. This is called antinomianism and the sad disposition of those who are found to be antinomians or those who rebel against God's Torah is very clear throughout the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation. Few scriptures you can refer to here are Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Romans 8, 7 and 8, and 1 John 3 and 4. <clears throat> this belief system will take its advocates down the broad road to destruction that such people will realize is real and final when they face the God they deny. One of the gods of Egypt was the Nile during the time described in our Padasha. God knew this, of course, and would use this against Pharaoh, as we shall learn. Now that Israel had flourished and grown as a nation, Pharaoh expressed his perceived power by way of enslaving the Israelites and making it extremely difficult to carry out their work with fewer supplies. Furthermore, they were beaten constantly. When that didn't affect the desired outcome, he ordered the midwives to kill all the male newborns. Thanks to God's intervention in the lives of his people and his perfect plan, the two midwives, Shafira and Pua, loved and feared God more than Pharaoh and let the male infants live. This is in Exodus 1.17. The action of these two women set the stage for many other women who played a crucial role in God's plan as it unfolded like tightly wrapped knots of the tzitzot. Not only are women used by God throughout his Torah, but a few were given the privilege of a very close relationship with him, such as Mary, who was the vehicle for his physical manifestation as Messiah, and others who faithfully followed him throughout his ministry. By the way, this event of Messiah's conception is a perfect example of Einstein's theory of relativity. <clears throat> that is, God converted some of his potential energy to kinetic energy and then sent it at the speed of light to Mary's womb, which at that time became, quote-unquote, matter, Yeshua. This is my hypothesis. It makes perfect sense. In our Padasha, we see how God intervenes, present tense, in the lives of women in diverse ways. Through the midwives, Pharaoh's daughter, and Moshe's mother, God's power can soften the hearts of anyone, Egyptian or Israelite, Gentile or Jew, as we read in this parasha. As for Moshe, he was taken in to be raised as an Egyptian. Interestingly, Moshe's name means pulled out, which is exactly what happens when an individual comes to God by accepting Yeshua's sacrifice, learning and following God's commands. Although Moshe was raised in the house of Pharaoh, he was moved with compassion when he saw one of the Egyptians strike a Hebrew kinsman. Perhaps he developed this sense of compassion, remembering the compassion shown him by Pharaoh's daughter, 
his sister and his mother as she was raising him, knowing she had to relinquish him to Pharaoh's daughter. I want to revisit a relevant narrative found in the Zohar that provides an interesting messianic perspective from this Kabbalistic commentary. We're jumping ahead to the punishment of Egypt and Edom that's in the works explained in our Padishah and in the Brit Kadishah. I'm going to quote directly from the Zohar as the narrative can't be proved, improved upon, I don't believe. It's my hope that you can read into this text and see the connection to the book of Revelation and Yeshua's return. Quote, now if Egypt was punished, notwithstanding the kindness with which she treated Israel, especially at first, it can certainly be expected that Assyria and Edom, and in fact, all the nations who have maltreated Israel will receive their punishment from the Holy One when he will manifest the glory of his name to them as it is written, thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself and I will be known among many nations. That's in Ezekiel 38, 23. Rabbi Simeon lifted up his hands and wept. Alas, he said, for him who will live at that time, yet happy he will who live at that time. When the Holy One comes to visit the hind, that means Israel here, he will examine who it is that remains loyal to her at that time, and then woe to him who shall not be found worthy, and of him who it shall be said, I looked and there was none to help. Isaiah 62, 23. Many sufferings shall then befall Israel, but happy he is who will be found faithful at that time, for he shall see the joy-giving light of the king. Concerning that time it is proclaimed, I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. Zechariah 13, 9. Then shall pangs and travail overtake Israel, and all nations and their kings shall furiously rage together and take counsel against her. Thereupon a pillow of fire will be suspended from heaven to earth for 40 days, visible to all nations. Then the Messiah will arise from the Garden of Eden, from that place which is called the bird's nest. He will arise in the land of Galilee, and on that day the whole world will be shaken and all the children of men shall seek refuge in caves and rocky places. Concerning that time it is written, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Isaiah 2.19 The glory of his majesty refers to the Messiah when he shall reveal himself in the land of Galilee. For in this part of the holy land, the desolation began first. And therefore, he will manifest himself there first, and from there begin to war against the world. Unquote. Scrolling down in the text a bit further, we read that after a designated time, quote, the Holy One shall show forth his power before all the nations of the earth, and the Messiah will be manifested throughout the whole universe. And all the kings will reunite to fight against him, and even in Israel. There will be found some wicked ones who shall join them in the fight against the Messiah. Then there will be darkness over all the world, and for 15 days shall it continue. And many in Israel shall perish in that darkness. Concerning this darkness it is written, Behold, darkness covers the earth, and gross darkness the peoples. Isaiah 62. The above narrative clearly supports scripture in the Brit Kadashah that the verse, all Israel shall be saved, does not mean every biological Jew or those within the confines of the state of Israel will be saved. Just as the Israelites had to choose whether or not they would obey God's instructions, apply the blood of the sacrificial lambs on the lentils, that's doorposts of their homes, 
To be spared from the angel of death about to pass through Egypt that night, all men must choose to either accept the sacrifice of Yeshua, who was the sacrificial lamb for all who seek the living water and the bread of life, or die the second death, that is eternal separation from God in hell. A couple of references here, Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and Revelation 8, 4, also Revelation 13, 8. Our Haftarahs in Yermiyahu, Jeremiah 1, 1 through 2, 3. And this one speaks to similarities between Moshe and Jeremiah as they were called by God for their specific missions. They were both humble men who initially attempted to rescue themselves from their God-given tasks. God reassured both men that they were prepared for their missions and that they would not be killed at the hands of their enemies. This doesn't mean that they couldn't be injured. Jeremiah saw a staff from an almond tree a symbol described in Numbers 17.23 to designate Aharon as the man God chose as the high priest before all Israel and to represent that the legitimate priesthood would remain with Israel. Only the kingship would be lost through their disobedience. Similarly, we need to accomplish our, person in, our purpose in life, which is to glorify God as did these prophets. Our specific mission is made known to us at God's chosen time, whether in our youth or in old age. We need to prepare our hearts and minds to take advantage of the opportunities as they are presented. Like Jeremiah, God is with us to rescue us. We have opportunities to glorify God every day simply by living according to his instructions, his Torah. This is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 11 as one of many scriptures repeating these same instructions. Remember that Yeshua promises us, quote, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, unquote. Matthew 11, 29 and 30. Our Brit Kaddishahs out of Hebrews 11, 23 through 6. And this narrative reiterates and emphasizes the inextricable connection between trusting and obedience. What is taught to us in God's Torah is not the gospel of profession. All right, it's a gospel of the kingdom. And that, by default, implies rules and structure and laws. Trusting is an action verb. And it indicates that true belief in Yahweh Yeshua mandates action. This is accomplished by loving obedience to God's commands, as we read in the scriptures below. This is not living under works or under the law. This is following God's commands as he commands us to do if we're to be counted as one of his true followers, one of his people. I'm going to read through 11.1 here. Trusting is being confident of what we hope for, convinced about things we do not see. It was for this that scripture attested the merit of the people of old. Trusting, or faith. In the Greek, it's pistis. Being confident, that which stands under. That's what that means, upostasis. What gives present reality to what we hope for. This is all present, you see, present and future. In contrast to the rest of the chapter, which analyzes various heroes of faith chronicled in the Tanakh, this verse sets forth a basic function of trusting, namely that by trusting we understand, or as the 11th century Christian theologian Anselm put it, credo ut intelligum, I believe in order to understand. Those who refuse to take the tiny step necessary to trust in God cannot understand the most basic truths. And I mentioned this uh, to some degree in a previous message where we addressed the parables and why God used them. 
The benevolent consequences of faith are not only emotional, but affect the realm of the mind. By trusting, the parents of Moshe hid him for three months after he was born because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they weren't afraid of the king's decree. By trusting, Moshe, after he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah as greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he kept his eyes fixed on the reward. The author devotes more space to Moshe here than to any of the other heroes of faith except Abraham. Verse 23, the parents of Moshe, Amran, and Yochaved hid him by placing him in a basket to float in the Nile so that he wouldn't be killed according to Pharaoh's decree. In answer to their faith, Pharaoh's daughter found him there and raised him as her own, even employing the child's own mother to nurse him. What a blessing. Moshe had every possible advantage Egypt could offer. Jewish tradition maintains that as the adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter, he may even have been in line for the throne. But he also had knowledge of God's revelation and of his own identity as an Israelite and chose being mistreated along with God's people rather than enjoying the prerequisites of his position until finally he was forced to flee for his life. He had come to regard abuse suffered on behalf of the Messiah. He did not know of Yeshua that we know of, nor is there evidence that he had specific knowledge of a coming Messiah at that time, Savior or Son of God, although he did refer to a star that would come out of Jacob and to a future prophet like himself whose words were to be obeyed. So maybe he did. It doesn't say that explicitly, but he may have. But John 5.46 says that Moshe nevertheless wrote about Yeshua, and he did. One may fairly say that Moshe suffered on behalf of all God's promises, both those known to him at the time and that God would make in the future. And after the fact, it's clear that this implies his suffering abuse on behalf of the Messiah. Shaul or Paul, in many ways, the Moshe of his day, suffered similarly. But he kept his eyes fixed on the reward, which was not seen. May we learn and internalize the truth that God uses those he chooses, no matter their past, for his glory, and that we need only be good and faithful servants, making him our top priority in all things. Yes, he does intervene in all the affairs of the universe, including man, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. That's in Deuteronomy 31, 6 and 8 and Matthew 28, 20. I would highlight that, bookmark it, whatever you have to do to to memorize it and keep it at hand whenever you feel like you're alone because you never are alone. Shalom. If you would like uh, any questions answered, if you would like anything uh, commented on, anything that you have a question about or comments, please go to our website at rabdavis.org under the Ask the Rabbi link, and you can certainly address your concerns or comments there, and I will be happy to get back with you. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Shabbat Shalom.